Dr. Kuntz, you, you say you have some thoughts on, on Ukraine, and, and I have thoughts on Ukraine, but also thoughts on Russia, mainly because I've been reading a substack called the Slavland Chronicles. There, there's a lot of substacks out there, I imagine, including my own, which you can find at revfisk.com. Um, but Slavland Chronicles, I don't know who this guy is. Uh, he uh, formerly lived in Russia, is a Russian citizen, I think, if I'm getting his story right. Um, he may still be there. Uh, he is definitely kind of on the pro-Putin side, but also frustrated by Putin. Seems kind of objectively just angry at everybody and highly intellectual in his approach. Um, his description of American commoners is where I really, you know, I'm reading along kind of like, okay, he's talking about the Donbass, he's talking about this and that. And then he's like, mm-hmm. a paragraph on American commoners. And I'm like, oh, he got that one right. And then he'll go off and he'll talk more about, you know, how the liberals within Putin's regime are working their way against Putin. So he's not really safe and blah, blah, blah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I get any of it. Other than that, he seems like he's really got on the ground knowledge of uh, an area of the country that, or excuse me, area of the world where we otherwise are only getting disinformation, misinformation, propaganda from our current regime. Um, you know, I, I did watch, uh, I think we talked about this last time a little bit, the interview with a, the emergent of death. And uh, um, so that, that managed to make its way over on YouTube. So it's not like nothing comes from, from over there. Um, but at the same time, every piece of information from that side of the planet is, is I think, rightly kind of suspect right now. Um, yeah. and, and so trying to pin down what's going on. Uh, meanwhile, you know, uh, my thoughts about Ukraine, we've given them a great deal of money, the, the, you know, <laughs> uh, in, <laughs> simply incredible amounts. Yeah. In, in one year, more than the entire Afghanistan more, uh, from what I saw today, uh, which is really saying something there. Um, lots of memes floating around Zelensky, you know, uh, screws McDuck swimming in gold and handing out bills like he's, uh, um, not Adam Sandler, uh, whatever the guy is from dumb and dumber. Anyway, uh, handing out dollars and, and dancing and all this stuff. And um, it's, it's all kind of funny, sort of, yeah, but uh, I don't know. Is it this show that did this to me? I don't find the memes funny anymore, like laughing about it <laughs> like a cynic. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. solve anything, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just going to keep going. Um, yeah, there's a grift. Yeah, it's a, it's a money laundering scenario. I mean, FTX is definitely involved in this at some point. And Freed, he posted bail today uh, with the money he doesn't have. I mean, we're, we're, what? Huh? Um, so meanwhile, there definitely are Ukraine flags being flung, flown all over the United States as if this is, uh, the most important thing in the world. Uh, there is definitely a, uh, a Nazi battalion working for Ukraine. Uh, the, the Ukrainian president has definitely, uh, silenced all opposition, taken control of the media and runs the place like a dictatorship as opposed to a democracy. But democracy is what it's about. Um, those are my thoughts there. I know you can probably shore that up with some order. Yeah, I mean, remember that we've been saving democracy for more than 100 years at this point. So there there are uh, elements of this, uh, of the Ukraine situation and of Russia that are perennial. There are things particular to today that, that we do want to talk about, including the the role of crypto exchanges and, and the Biden family. But I think it's a good place to start where you started with the acknowledgement that Generally, American foreign adventures involve places that are difficult to access, let alone to grasp in any way for an American. So we have several difficulties in this regard that are maybe greater than most other developed countries that, for example, it is it is pretty rare for an American to be in any way fluent in another modern foreign language, any foreign language. It doesn't have to be modern, I suppose. 
because of that, you have barriers of which the American isn't even aware because he's never been forced to learn another culture or another language sufficiently well to master the foreign language and to understand how many concepts get locked up in foreign languages, let alone knowledge, let alone just understandings of how something is supposed to work that would be common in that foreign language. So this is something that if you pick up George Kennan's memoirs, a guy that we've mentioned several times before, especially regarding the Cold War, he became famous because of that, but he was a diplomat already before the Second World War. He begins in that interwar period. And in one of his memoirs, the first volume, he is recounting coming home. He's originally from Milwaukee. The Kennan family is sort of an old established family in Milwaukee. And he is somewhere on a train. I believe it's in Indiana. And he's hearing Americans talk. And part of this is that he's been abroad so long that he is alienated from his own people, which is something to talk about regarding particularly Ukrainian elites. We can maybe do that later on. But he's a little alienated. So there's a little bit of just disdain that comes from a lack of familiarity. He doesn't actually know the American, let's say, average Joe. But in addition to that, he has this sense that like sweeps over him as he's on this train that Americans cannot possibly know anything about any of the places in which in the 1920s, you know, this is after the First World War, they're prog becoming progressively more involved. So you're talking about 100 years ago. We are way less involved in the world then than we are now, way less involved than we would be about 30 years from Kennan's recollection to begin with. And at that very point, we still matter enough that Kennan is basically worried that we can't really know what we're doing or what is being done in our name. It's too far away. We don't understand it. We're not from there, whatever. But that nonetheless, we're going to do it. <laughs> and... I've never forgotten that because, particularly because it applies to basically our entire national life, certainly in and all the time after the Second World War, that we are engaged in things and we, there's there's almost no way that hardly anyone in the United States could really understand what's being done in our name. So if you think about it, just begin from that point, it's like, that would be kind of tragic enough. If we were sending $100,000 a year to Ukraine, which would be whatever it is per American household. So the amount of money that we've sent so far as of the end of 2022 is Thomas Massey, who's a house rep from Kentucky, Republican, calculated it was roughly $500 per American household that's being sent to Ukraine. So if you you break that down, you say, well, that's however many weeks worth of groceries that I have instead of buying groceries sent to Ukraine or has been sent to Ukraine in my name, right? It's like, you know, you get a Christmas present from somebody. It's like, I donated to Planned Parenthood on your behalf, you know, or whatever the case may be, something, something you actively oppose, or maybe more innocuously, like you just don't care about, like you have no interest in, you know, I don't know, cycling, but someone donated to USA cycling on your behalf, like so that you can make sure that our Olympians are that much better trained in cycling. You're like, I don't care about that at all. 
too late. $500 in your name. You know, you got a little brick at the headquarters of USA Cycling. So that reality is that, I mean, it, it, would, it would sort of be bad enough if it could be facetious or if it could be a low amount. But it's it's in deadly earnest and it's it's done in your name, you know? It's it's on your behalf. And depending on your demographic, you it is somewhat likely that your son could actually get sent there too after the money has been sent there. Because there are so many parallels to this before in our history, which we're gonna talk about. But I mean, just to begin there, how can we even possibly know? what it is that's being done, how many of us are fluent in Russian, let alone Ukrainian. Yeah, the the, the cycling uh, donation imagery kind of falls apart for me in that, like that, you're right, I wouldn't care about that. But this this is beyond not caring, because yeah. I, I kind of I kind of want to care, but I can't really know what I'm caring for. And it... it the, the, what it makes me think of is like like the mafia a little bit. Like, um, on the one hand, well, you protect the neighborhood. That's great. But I'm not sure how you're doing it or whether it's really good for anybody. So that's not great. So do I really want to, like, invite you into my neighborhood, right? Yeah. Um, and and that, that analogy will fall apart, too. Um, but, you know, being uh, – unable to tell what we're doing, where we're doing, it's almost like passing a 17,000 page document after less than 24 <laughs> hours with yeah, trillions right. of dollars of spending in it, right? That kind of thing. And uh, it's not that you can't run a country like that. You can. We're doing it. That's what they're doing. How sustainable right. is the country? Well, you know, listener, you you're, you know we think it's not sustainable. You know we know or we believe that, that something um, catastrophic, one way or the other, is, is going to come, is going to happen. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm partially through a... Uh, I can't think of the title of the book, and it's it's upstairs. Ray Dalio, a massive uh, billion billion uh, dollar plus hedge fund investor, uh, wrote a book uh, recently about the rise and fall of economies, and uh, I'm I'm just about a third of the way through it. But uh, he's he's laying down the same stuff that that we're picking up here, which is that uh, we're in a state of uh, civilizational financial ending that must at some point reboot. And the way that that reboots is when the current world order financial system ceases to be trustworthy or viable, meaning that even the government can't buy its own bad debt anymore. At that point, then the powers that be, that is those who have the guns, try to decide who gets to start over. And they do this by using the guns, first against those who disagree with them, then against those who agree with them but are not them, until they're able to reestablish a new order in which that debt that cannot be serviced gets returned or, or, or scuttled uh, through some other form of, of system, which effectively means a lot of people get very poor um, one way or the other. But they, they are willing to believe in the promises of uh, new, a new establishment. Or they are forced to believe those promises. Any case, uh, so so the the reference to uh, the passing of the government spending bill that just happened uh, as we are recording this uh, just uh, yesterday, I believe. Um, yeah. you know, Mitch McConnell coming out and saying the most important thing on all Republicans' minds is the war in Ukraine. That's that's the most valuable thing right now to, to be concerned about, uh, including uh, in that spending bill um, financial 
dollars for borders that are not our border, but no real support for our actual border. While Texas, <laughs> you know, Texas is yeah. is doing one thing. Arizona's having to take apart the wall they built because the Biden admin has sued them. On and on and on and on and on. What we can't we can't know what's going on overseas. We can know what's going on here, but at a certain point, um, you can't know what's going on here outside of your your own locality either. Um, and I don't know. I don't know where I'm headed with this. Other than that, uh, the grift is on. The grift is on hard, and it it there's no there's no stopping the ship. Right? You, you can't jump off the ship. Um, you're in for the ride. And so, well, what what do we take from that then? Right? Knowing well, the, that we're dealing I, with elites that are looting the system, what do we take from that? Yeah, the significance of that bill or the way that bills are structured, where as recently as. 10 or 15 years ago, the bill is still going to have some pretense of clarity. So it'll be 20 pages and you have a week to read it or you have three days to read it or whatever, rather than it's thousands of pages and you have a night to read it, allegedly. The point of that is that they're not really hiding the nature of what they're doing here. So we have always accused politicians of corruption. That's that's a perennial complaint in any polity. The question is whether the politician is trying to hide that or not. So the comparison of the mafia, I think, is a little bit insulting to the mafia. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm not just I'm not saying that just to be funny, because one thing you can tell about the mafia, both in Italy and in the United States, Australia, other places that existed with an Italian diaspora and then and then other forms of that, you know, the Irish mob, Jewish mob, so on is that they generally pretended to uphold their community's moral standards. Pretended, right? But they're not going to, you know, the, the, the Italian mafia is not going to bomb a Catholic church, except under the most extreme circumstances. It's simply not going to happen, right? So their their way of protecting or of making money is, of course, violent, reprehensible, etc. It has its problems. It is not trying to overturn its own community's moral standards while being corrupt. Okay. So there's a difference here with our elites, as well as the elites that have been in power in Ukraine for roughly eight years, ever since the Maidan protests, which are, well, by the time this episode comes out, it will be nine years ago. Because what happens during a color revolution, uh, a term we, I think we've talked about before, but it's just basically color is the idea that beginning roughly around the Obama administration, although there are some precedents I think exist, but roughly around the Obama administration, our government especially begins to orchestrate in the Arab world, also in Ukraine in 2014, that color there was orange. In the Arab world, it was green. Revolutions that are going to be ostensibly introducing liberal democracy, right? So certain forms of representation, representative government as a principle generally, but you know we need to have this many Ukrainian speakers and this many Russian speakers in Ukraine. We need to have this many women in the Afghan parliament. We need to do this. We need to do that, right? And it's generally going to be promoted through social media, which we now know thanks to Twitter files, I mean, we know, I mean, we knew, but now we know through the Twitter files that our social media is extensively, you could say, infiltrated by 
or collaborating with our law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies? What's the difference on some and, level? Well, to be fair, the FBI did come out today and say that's a conspiracy theory. So just, <laughs> they really did. That was their line right. today. <laughs> it's like, it's like, guys, we can see their resume on LinkedIn. It says Federal Bureau of Investigation, then Twitter, now Federal Bureau of Investigation again. This isn't hard. <laughs> you know? It's unfortunate that so many people right? are willing to believe these things rather than trust the government that is there for but, their good. But yeah, so yeah. the, the role, social media is a big deal. So a lot of these color revolutions happen since the advent of smartphones. So that's why the internet gets shut down at various points in some of these countries during these kinds of unrest. So far, Iran is staving off several attempts at color revolution there, the latest of which is, of course, ongoing with, you know, here's here's a girl who died. Now she's internationally famous. How does that happen? So these kinds of things are ongoing and liberal democracy is apparently going to be introduced. The issue there is that, and and the and the reason for the investment, literal and figurative, of the United States of America, the you know Republican Senate leader, where his I mean his every poll of loyal Republicans reveals their number one political issue is immigration. That's been the case since roughly 2015. There are no exceptions. Okay, that's the number one issue. I mean, abortion doesn't even approach that for self-reported Republicans. And Ukraine isn't anywhere near that. So it's not like Mitch McConnell, quote, slipped up and said, the number one issue for Republicans is, you know, the protection of innocent human life. The number one issue for Republicans is the national debt. I mean, something that would be plausible other than immigration to our country, like that it's too high, that the border's a mess, whatever. Not even close. He says Ukraine. The reason being that when a color revolution is introduced, the country is now accessible to Western powers, the United States of America, the European Union, you know, Australia, New Zealand. And since it's accessible to Western powers, it's accessible as a market. It's also accessible if you have an understanding of what they're doing to other influences that simply are not permitted in countries that resist this. So if Iran resists in the name of Islam, Russia resists in the name of Mother Russia, along with its traditions, some of which are, at least culturally speaking, Orthodox Christian, China resists this in the name of whatever, <laughs> zero COVID, whatever their values are, right? So a color revolution matters a great deal. And this is kind of that these are the two different tracks we're going to follow. There's kind of a hard material reality to these things, which is generally ignored. And that has a great deal to do with just the absolute collapse of the Hunter Biden story in the case of Ukraine, which revealed so much. On the other hand, it has to do with the introduction of something from which Western countries themselves suffer, which is radically sudden and massive cultural change. So it's those two things come along with what's going to be called liberal democracy or democracy or whatever. There are obviously people in each of those countries that are either being changed or we seek to change them, our government seeks to change them, that agree with those things. And such a character is Vladimir Zelensky. But that it's a kind of two-track 
we're going to use you materially and we're going to change you spiritually. Those two things are always going together in these cases. So when we talk about, well, you know, money is being given to USA Cycling in your name. Well, what does USA Cycling do? This is what USA Cycling does. It's going to use you as a market node that didn't exist before or existed under other other controls. And then it's going to change you radically in a in a spiritual or personal sense for which you are unprepared because you know i mean if we're shocked by the existence of uh you know transgenderism what do you think is happening to somebody that hasn't been prepared by hollywood television for the past 25 years that's a rhetorical question i feel insulted no i don't, I don't need to answer that right like they are um <laughs> uh, they're they're violently opposed to these things and and we're seeing that i think um but at the same time uh, Ukraine is then a, uh, it's not really just about that, right? Um, it, it is about NATO and Western control over uh, the entire market on the planet. Um, or is it? Or is it about creating a place where money can be washed, money can be laundered? Is it really just about uh, the stiletto heel of LBGTQ? pushing its democracy on on the world is that really what's driving it or i i would lean yeah so it's finances it's gotta be no that's good i don't i don't see those things as actually separable and there there is something mysterious about this but let me just explain why i don't see them as separable and then the mystery of it you know i i don't i don't have an answer to that precisely i don't see them as separable because the basic Historic critique of both greed generally and usury, the illegitimate creation of wealth by various means. It's not just interest rates. There are other, you know, counterfeiters suffer the same fate. They're in the same, I believe they're in the same ring of hell as usurers in Dante's Inferno, for example. The critique of illegitimate wealth is that it is at base unnatural. And this gets dismissed pretty much out of hand. Lutheran pastors do it when they dismiss Luther's writings on economics, but economists do it when they dismiss Aristotle's thinking about, about what is unnatural and how money does not actually breed more money and lots of things like that. So the idea here is that it's unnatural. And when things are unnatural, not only are they not productive, finally, in a way that natural economic activities such as growing crops or mining would be a legitimate natural activity. You have to think about, you know, in a person like Aristotle, what are all the different things that he writes about? Maybe those different things like biology and economic activity and criticism of poetry. And maybe those are all related to his philosophical views, right? That when you engage in natural pursuits, you will not be rapacious and destructive because those natural pursuits have certain limits because they have specifically certain ends, purposes, goals. They have a, the Greek word is telos. So they're teleologically conditioned, right? I, I use them for what they're for. But when we engage in things that are unnatural, there's no, it doesn't seem like there's specifically a purpose or that that thing that you're using, even if it's another human being or an entire country of them, they have no specific purpose on their own. They're basically just there to be 
used. You take things that are ends and you turn them into means. Okay. So at that point, your rapaciousness, your your capacity to just loot grows and grows and grows and grows in the same way that greed grows and grows and grows and grows. That's why I don't really see what is in the case of introduction of, you know, pride movements or pride parades, which if those ever get canceled in somewhere like Moscow, you will see that on the news. The reason for that is that introduction of those things is introduction of what is similarly unnatural, but therefore whose desire cannot be satiated by anything. So it just infinitely grows. And usually it will appear in the same person's life. So the reason that I brought up Hunter Biden is not because, you know, it was really all that great, the pictures that came off his laptop, or that the story about how his laptop was obtained, you can go find that for yourself on the internet, is particularly like, it's like, there's some missing parts here. Of course, there are some missing parts in the story. It's that his existence summarizes almost in his person what our regime produces produces in the way of human beings and then how those human beings attached to our regime operate. And it's really helpful because Hunter Biden's dad is not in and of himself wealthy or particularly talented apart from his time spent within our regime. He has not a whole lot else in life particularly to offer. You know, he had to go to Syracuse for law school because he couldn't get in other places, right? So he's a, he's a rare regime figure who didn't attend, as far as I can remember off the top of my head, an Ivy, even though that's that's where a lot of them meet each other, globally speaking at this point, because he's just not that good. So he couldn't get in in grades in the, in the 70s, so he went to Syracuse. So Hunter Biden grows up as a beneficiary of our system almost purely, so what happens when he grows up? And there, there's a lot of sort of salacious personal details. And that's what people got fixated on. I think that's why they release things that they do. And they don't release, you know, detailed breakdowns of where Hunter flew when and, and whom he met and what he sold things for apart from his art, which is almost a salacious personal detail. What they often want you to do with a person who would reveal too much by his activities is they want you to focus on his personal failings, mm -hmm. his psychology, his marital troubles, his extramarital troubles, all of that. And that way, that's what you remember, art, or he had embarrassing photos or whatever. You're not supposed to remember what is revealed here, which is also revealed in a place like Las Vegas, or is revealed in certain Caribbean islands, you know, so Ep Epstein's Island is in the same neighborhood as many what are called offshore, you know, financial centers. When you think about somewhere like the Ukraine, you have to think about it the same way that you might think about Las Vegas. It's a transient place for global elites, certainly. And it's a place that has not a lot of particular unity about it, right? So prior to 2014, the drama of Ukrainian politics was both how it develops more rapidly, but also how they resolve the balance of power between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers, 
some of that was resolved by the first set of Russian invasions that secured large amounts of territory for Russia, right? Although Zelensky is still, you know, is, is obviously still claiming those things as Ukrainian territory. Since it doesn't have, I mean, it's almost like Switzerland this way. It's sort of like a, an impoverished Switzerland with a great deal more agricultural potential. So now it's a fairly large country with a fairly large military that is completely up for grabs. And what it's going to become, especially post-2014, and you can see it if you look at Hunter Biden's business activities, when he flew to Kiev, why, where, what the different companies are called. The purpose of that is not that they're trying to make Ukraine safe for democracy. They are trying to make money, but contained in the same person who's trying to constantly make money, maybe on the backs of the US taxpayer or on the backs of the European taxpayer or on the backs of the Ukrainians who don't have power and haven't had it for weeks in certain places or who are being bombed right now, whatever, is that that person who is pursuing what is unnatural, let's say on a macro scale or on a financial scale or on a political scale, will also pursue what is unnatural and perverse on a personal scale. So I, I don't like I, I don't think it's unusual that we have pioneered in so many countries, especially through our media, both what is wildly perverse on a personal moral level and what is wildly perverse on a political level, on a large scale countrywide level where you you're like, OK, it's a 17,000 page bill. We're not allowed to protect our own border, but we're supposed to ensure the border of the country of Ukraine, this makes no sense, but it kind of does. <laughs> I think it makes a lot of sense because if I have people pursuing what is unnatural in one part of their life, like fervently, constantly, why would that stop at that part of their life? Yeah, twisted things are going to be twisted things. If you're if you're unable to think with uh, measurement and accuracy, uh, then right. wherever you go to to put down uh, your efforts, you're going to create asymmetry, and uh, that asymmetry can be spiritual. Uh, that asymmetry can be uh, purely financial. You know, bad yeah. scales, bad scales. The Old Testament is like all about this, man. <laughs> it's, you know, the, God's view of righteousness is very much at root here. Uh, it's it's not just a symbolic justification by grace through faith, but it is a um, a correcting of the upside down, the perversion, uh, which is where for Christianity to be so limp-wristed in the face of much of the last few years, if not the last few decades, uh, betrays a certain um, bentness, uh, a certain uh, lack of discernment, uh, a, a emptying wisdom, or maybe yeah. in a different way, an, an eye that is full of darkness. And at, at, at what point then um, are we even the remnant? Uh, can we realize that so much of what's going on around us is here, much as Judah was being punished by Assyria uh, for their own unbelief uh, in the face of Israel's collapse? And, you know, can we in the churches see that our empty pews and our children uh, apostatizing and uh, many of the mainline uh, organizations, whether they be institutions, colleges, uh, large congregations also apostatizing uh, and on sexual issues, again, uh, kind of a, a, the new thing, um, but it's the old thing. Uh, it, if, if we cannot see that, then it, it, the tide is only going to sweep us away, right? Um, and 
uh, of course, I'm preaching the choir a little bit, right? Like the whole point of this podcast, the reason why you listen uh, is because you see that. You're like, yeah, yeah well, I see this. I see this. Right, let's do something, right? Um, let's, let's write about it online in a forum. And uh, I, I don't know. You know. What do we do? This is always the question I come back to with when we have these conversations, Dr. Koontz. Is, um, so Ukraine is the, the, the melting pot for financial collapse so that people who are perverse can do what they want more. And, you know, you mentioned the Ukrainians being powerless. You meant electricity, but, you know, powerless to stop it themselves as well. Uh, here we are. We've got electricity, but we don't have any power. Uh, we don't have any capacity to change what our Senate and what our Congress are going to do in this lame duck session with these, uh, the bill that was just passed. Um, McCarthy becoming the, the speaker hardly uh, emboldens me to believe that uh, we're going to see anything different uh, on the other side of, of, uh, of January. Um, we're going to continue to have a, a controlled opposition managing our, our storyline for the sake of outrage but never really giving us the chance uh, to to prepare ourselves to stop um, uh, the, the the looting of the American dollar. And again, if, if Dalio's book uh, has shown me anything, it's like it doesn't even matter. I mean, it, there there is nothing we could do or should do. It's merely you're on the tides of history here, and so you got you got to ride them. Uh, which brings me back to the church, right? So what's the church's role in this? Uh, is it just to kind of preach justification into the wind? Uh, is it to preach good measurement and honest scales uh, to the locality? Um, is it to, to, to beg Jesus for mercy uh, and ask him to uh, what uh, keep our ark afloat uh, no matter what else may come? Um, all of that, I think, is, is the answer. Uh, but uh, I, know, I know you can put a capstone on it. I, I don't. I don't think that I feel the bewilderment that people sometimes do when they consider not only foreign affairs, but also our own government, because I think people have shifted maybe very rapidly on an individual level from some sort of belief in a, a wildly ahistorical version of American history to a much greater awareness of what is occurring or, or how bills get passed. That is not what schoolhouse rock taught you. And, <laughs> Sorry. you know, and, and, and what the levers are and who pulls the levers, who is flying Zelensky to close the New York stock exchange and then to wear a sweatshirt into the oval office and whatever else is happening, right? Like that these things don't work the way that you thought they did. And that gives people, I think, they, they may have abandoned their sense of the mechanics of government or the mechanics of politics or the mechanics of power, but they had never had and, and have not yet gained a sense of the fragility of those things. So I think one of the, one of the absolute worst things that the American people do because of the distance they have from the places where we generally become most involved is that they conflate their sense of the world and of how government works and of the the naturalness of democracy or equality or whatever other characteristics seem normal to you on an everyday basis in you know Enid Oklahoma and they map those onto other people whom they do not understand and they don't even know that they don't understand because their own grasp of their own government and their own history is so wildly ahistorical and when things are ahistorical, human things, 
human beings tend not to overestimate in the direction of humility or smallness, right? It's it's fairly rare for a nation or its rulers or its people to basically, you know, to overestimate how little they matter. That is to underestimate themselves. That's very rare because it's not really flattering to the human psyche, you know, national or individual. We tend to overestimate the force, the reality, the naturalness, the importance of things that are historical products. They, they didn't once exist and they could easily not exist again. There's a difference between us then and, say, the Russians or the Ukrainians or the Belarusians or the Poles, most of whom, certainly if they're of the age to listen to this podcast, will remember a different regime. I mean, an explicitly different regime. We all remember when Saturday Night Live was still making fun of men dressing up as women. I I don't mean that. I mean, an explicitly different regime different flags, totally different people, different names for everything, totally different statues. Now we, as I say statues, are obviously going through something like that. But it doesn't announce itself in that way, right? So Robert E. Lee was never historically defaced by practically anyone. And now his name and his image and everything are being ripped away even from West Point, where he is of legitimate historical importance even prior to the Civil War. So we're going through something like that, but it won't tell you it's very different. It won't tell, you know, it doesn't have this, some kind of weird, we're on our fifth or sixth different republic idea or anything like that. So it's hard for us to understand just how quickly things could go away or new things could pop up. There, There are examples like this in our history, but... Let me just give you one example that I think is pertinent to Ukraine. If you remember why we originally went into Afghanistan, a place that we would then try to reconstruct under conditions that did not involve facing one of the world's largest best equipped militaries in Russia, right? We we were facing the Taliban, a former client of ours, but nowhere near the Russian military, okay? Which if you remember, also was defeated in the 1980s by said Taliban with our help. We go into Afghanistan because we're trying to avenge what happened on September 11th. So there's a very characteristic combination here of collective amnesia about the presence and the the failures of domestic intelligence agencies to handle the hijackers. And Along with that, an immense amount of idealism on the part of the American people, the NFL star, Pat Tillman, volunteered for the military and died under rather suspicious circumstances in Afghanistan, spurred on by the rush of patriotism after September 11th. They're still calling on those things in the modern United States of America. It's just that 17-year-olds are not responding the way they used to, and many of them are not biologically capable of responding to a call for military enlistment. But they still use the same reflexes because it is, in some ways, still the same regime it was 21 years ago. So we do that. We go in. I, I guess eventually we get Obama, but somehow we end up reconstructing a country. So that's that. we ended up doing much the same thing 
that we're now doing financially and materially sending tons of howitzers, I think they're M777s, to Ukraine from our Marine Corps. So we're, we're doing many of those things. We don't apparently have tons of troops on the ground, but we're trying to shore up a regime that is under material and obvious military threat. So there's there are also analogies here with South Vietnam. The thing that is, I think, desperately familiar about the whole situation is not just that we might stand to benefit in various ways. Ideologically, it's it's less clear what we stand to benefit than in, say, shoring up South Vietnam against North Vietnamese and Chinese aggression. But what is occurring is that we are pretending to know what we're doing. And our, in fact, our, our government pretends. It's not just that we are pretending, like we're watching, we're buying Ukrainian flags, we're taking sides in a conflict that we don't understand, don't grasp, history we don't know, people we don't know. It's not just that we're doing that. It's that as we do that, our regime is also doing that. So the thing that I think you should think when you see, here's this 17,000-page bill or whatever, is is not so much like I'm I'm completely powerless. I think we have to think not just why are they doing it this way because they're not even pretending that this is some sort of process of public debate or discussion anymore. They're not even pretending. But also, what are these people doing that are pushing beyond their own limits? Because if we're talking about power, it's not as if power is just this thing that you hold on to like the one ring. You know, I, I, there's something there's something about the Tolkien legends that mislead a lot of people, maybe even listeners to this podcast, in their thinking about power. Like power is a possession and certain people have it and other people don't. I mean, we have that, you know, that verbal phrase in English to have power, not to have power, to take power. But these things are all negotiated. And so it's almost like if you want to think of power as a possession, you, you should think about it almost like a liquid or something. You have more or less. You don't just have none or have it all in the way that I either have my ring on my finger or I don't. So when I'm thinking about, okay, the United States Congress last night as we record this has Vladimir Zelensky in, they're holding up a Ukrainian flag, I think uh, Kamala and Nancy. Nancy's Nancy's power is ebbing to keep the liquid metaphor going here. Kamala's power might be stagnant right now. Zelensky's power is that high tide. He is able to go everywhere and kind of be a jerk about it and still largely get what he wants. The only people that have snubbed him recently were the folks in charge of FIFA who would not let him address practically the whole world before you know the final match between Argentina and France. So when I see those people, I don't think of them nearly, I think, as invincibly as they think of themselves. Or as I think even some of the listeners think of them, like I'm powerless under them. No, you're not. There are lots of ways in which you're not. One is you don't have to offer, nor does the American populace have to offer, I think it's probably largely indifferent, any kind of service to them. 
you you don't. I mean, it, they obviously don't care about you. So why do you care about them? Well, they care about my 600 bucks I made on PayPal. <laughs> they do. They do. It's more but, about the services they offer me that I'm concerned about. You know, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In addition to that, they don't, I mean, they're not standing up. There's no national debate happening about several factors that probably make us more like Ukraine than Russia. The fragility of our power grid when it freezes. The fragility of our markets, not only our crypto markets, but other more standard asset classes, whenever our government decides to react pretty wildly toward Russian incursion into Ukraine. You know, I mean, it's the whole energy crisis that we and especially the Europeans are going through this winter is not really just sort of naturally because production is down somewhere. It's because of how we have reacted to the fact that one of the world's largest producers of so many kinds of energy, the Russians, are in our moral universe, the bad guys. So the people who are clapping wildly for Zelensky or who have desperately sure opinions about any of this, pro-Russian, pro-Ukrainian, whatever, I think they have relatively little sense of the fragility of the entire situation and of the people who are backing Zelensky. Now, this happens pretty much constantly because of the size and complexity of our society to somebody about whom you can read news stories. It just doesn't get mapped onto anybody else. It's it's kind of like what they do with Hunter Biden, where they're trying to just psychologically or you know, biographically isolate him, say, if we even admit that any of that was true or any of that happened or he did any of that, or the Biden family has been involved in Ukraine at all to any degree for decades, if we admit that, that's just him. Lone wolf. Yeah. And if if Sam Bankman-Fried was crazy and crazy hubristic and made all kinds of bad you know, deals, shoring up everything from <laughs> money transfers to Ukraine to you know the Miami Heat's arena. That was just him. Yeah, lone wolf. They're all doing that, yeah, yeah, that's right. And 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 that and that's just that that's just them. And once we get our central bank digital currency up and running, That'll you don't have to it. worry about stuff like this. Yeah, right. So yeah. they're very good. They're very good at being opportunistic about embarrassments to the system. What they don't want to do is reveal to you that the system has its own systemic, that is, inbuilt problems, holes, potentially cancerous growths. And that gives you a sense of its invincibility that then induces despair in you. It also gives you a sense that you can't that you can't do something else. Okay. So I, I think that this is, I think in the whole scheme of things, it's somewhat minor. But one thing that the system did not, still has not resolved, is the need to use the majority population of the West, especially its males. So we're talking about white males for certain useful tasks. Okay. And so you take somebody who's from a failed, once Western state, South Africa, and he's brought to the United States 
And now he's in charge of Twitter. And he, like Jack Dorsey before him, in sort of a different way, has an impulse toward the permission of freedom of speech that your average Western journalist or a regime toady does not. Okay. So unfortunately for them, he has the money or the wherewithal, at least for a time, to be in charge of these assets, which has more or less changed one of the not largest, but most influential means of communication in the developed world, certainly, and to some degree worldwide, overnight as to what is permitted, what is not permitted, how things can be talked about, how they may not be talked about. All of that has changed basically because of a single man who made money in a way that is still open to people of his kind. That's a hole that I think they want to close up eventually. I'm not sure that they exactly can, but they might want to, right? So that's an example where people felt hopeless or we can't speak our minds or whatever. And then because of a lever of power over which the regime, which is not God, does not have control exactly, entirely, something changed. So I, I think fragility is the thing that when you're acquainted with things, you become more and more aware of. I mean, if you think about your own body, you probably know more about your own medical ailments than your doctor or your spouse or something because you are you know what hurts and when it hurts when, you know, you know your own fragility better than anybody else. You may not admit it to other people. You may not need to talk about the fact that your shoulder hurts today or something, but you know it better than anybody else. The problem that we have both with our own regime, but also with its activities abroad is that we don't generally understand what is happening. We don't understand what they're doing or the places where they're doing it. So their existence or their activities seem, I think, far more immortal than they really are. It Yeah, it does. It looks like they really got this thing wrapped up or, right. or it's all crumbling from within, but it it's going to crumble in such a way that you got to go down with the ship, uh, you know, and, and notwithstanding an almighty God providing daily bread, which is where, you know, I always am going to point you back to uh, as yeah. your as your end end of this. But that that daily bread, I'm just going on a limb here, probably not going to be dew that turns into bread overnight on your grass, you know, in the next few years. Yeah, right. Um, it's going to come from from real things, uh, um, God, uh, the God of providence, more than say the God of interventionist miracles, and you know, betraying my my cessationism there. But um, so you know, the the prayers that I pray are still directed at you know how do I take wise actions day by day that are not based upon the mythology of the regime, but are based upon. Uh, prudent understanding of what's actually taking place. And so it's, it's not just the, the powerless comes from feeling that they have the power. It powerlessness comes from feeling like they don't have the power and this thing is spiraling into a catastrophe um, that, that <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to live through. Right? Yeah, and right. so I, I mean, Hezekiah going into the temple, man, it just, it just continues to be sort of like, well, I guess that's what we got right now. Um, because we're not stopping the incursion of, of Assyria into Judah. We're not going to do it by force of arms. And, uh, you know, force of arms being metaphorical here as I speak it, although not, not in all places in all, in all uh, directions. Um, yeah. You know, I, I look at 
uh, Illinois, the state in which I live, which has very good homeschool laws and very bad every other law there is. Um, you know, <laughs> passing the so-called Safety Act, which is going to make uh, police jobs more difficult. It makes uh, home intrusion something that's all but legal uh, in, in certain ways. Um, and and it's like, okay, so uh, you know, how I am powerless in the face of that law, right? It doesn't mean I'm powerless to take action myself on an intruder, but then that puts me in the power of those who would hold me accountable for my self-defense, right? Um, so before that all happens, trying to discern what the wise course of action is, you end up kind of uh, playing a game w- with no options. You know, I once, I don't, I don't play video games anymore, but I, I once played a, a storyline video game based upon Game of Thrones, and it was just the, the first chapter. There were supposed to be five or six of these, and it's like three hours of... Um, kind of dialogue-based decision-making with uh, three or four different characters who you, who you, you know, operate as, and they're from different houses and whatnot. And they're all kind of like happening around the actual story of the, the TV show, which is also based upon the books up to a certain point. And uh, by the end of this thing, it doesn't matter what choices you made, you lose. Like everybody dies. Everyone dies in a bad way. The best you get is someone calls you like your name after you die is they call you, you know, this the bold or whatever. But there, there, the game was there are no good choices. You're going to die. Um, and that is kind of what it feels like. I don't I don't know about the die part, but there are no good choices right now um, for uh, political operation um, as an American citizen. It just uh, or what choices there are seem so impotent. They seem like such a pure crapshoot. Um, I mean, how much beans and rice can you put up? And if you had enough beans and rice for several weeks, so what? What happens then? Um, Trying to hold gold or the dollar or Bitcoin, great. Um, What good is that when the water doesn't flow? And maybe this is a bit alarmist of me, right? Maybe it won't get that bad. I hope it doesn't get that bad here. But again, my, my point is that it doesn't look like they have power. It looks like they're losing power. And that the result of that kind of situation ultimately is um, uh, a, a war. Uh, and in that war, not only are people going to die because they get shot, that, that's not the major issue. The major issue is going to be starvation and, and medical issues uh, going on around the war. I mean, when the hospitals about, are being attacked. What? You're talking about a war in the United States or yeah, in I Ukraine? Yeah, so. I think so. Um, one way or the other. I mean, I mean you've, you've said yourself that we're already in... Um, uh, kind of like the the late stage political warfare where they're they're trying to to out each other right um, uh, uh, where various the, the regime that is in power will go yeah. after other elites um, if not directly uh, indirectly um, and and at what point does that become direct you know banana republic but yeah no I, I do think um, it, I think there is a, a point at which with the right light to the match of, of uh, the American tinderbox right now, uh, yeah, we end up in a, in a physical war. I mean, do you, do you not think that that's kind of inevitable at this point? I don't, I don't think it's inevitable because the collapse of regimes could occur in so many different ways that one of the absolute least advantageous ways that could happen would be an actual hot war yeah. that would be not- noticeable to the entire population. Totally agree. And I mean... I mean, least advantageous for investors in American markets and Chinese businessmen holding American real estate because of its security and 
so one of the reasons that I think, and we'll put this article in the show notes by Pedro Gonzalez, who usually writes for Chronicles, but this is on IM 1776 about the, you know, the financial aspect of Western engagement in Ukraine and how important it is. It's one of the inspirations for today's show is that Zelensky is in front of the New York Stock Exchange, you know, <laughs> telling investors to invest in a war zone, which sounds insane, you yeah. know, or, or 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 only for, you know, a guy for whom, you know, junk bonds just weren't spicy enough. You know, the absolute junkiest junk bonds were not spicy enough. I need to, I need to invest in an active war zone. Is that the the advantage to anyone of a hot war in the United States of America is extremely low. I don't therefore think it's improbable. I just think it's not inevitable because of how many other courses something could take from national divorce to regime change with the same structure and the same 50 states with appended territories. I mean, there are so many, so, so many options. So I'm not going to call it inevitable so much as probable. And if it, it, it doesn't have to be even necessarily something like a, a civil war. Uh, and you, you've talked about this before, that a yeah. civil war wouldn't look like what we imagine from the <laughs> phrase, right? No, the phrase no, has, a, has a mythology that would not be what. But uh, the, the, the breaking down of certain powers so that they stand against each other. But what I see is a barbaric populace who is increasingly either entitled or actually hungry that is increasingly ready to rage machine over very small things. You have um, the, the issue of the shootings that take place. And as much as those are, are the mass shootings are, are played up for the sake of gun control, um, they nonetheless are the outcome of, of a very sick society um, and in some ways make where we live already something of a terrorist war zone. Um, what are those individuals after? Uh, at what point do uh, the violence that we see, say, in Chicago streets or New York streets, do we just call that what it is, which is, is it's gang warfare, but it's escalating to a level of tribal warfare, it's tribal warfare. Um, so, you know, when I, when I say that we're going to have war, I, I don't necessarily mean we're, you know, Montana shooting nukes against D.C. or, or anything like that. What I mean is, is a level of violence that is... Um, unstoppable that over the course of, of years and even decades uh, leads to further destabilization of the system, which leads to the real death toll being more issues of um, uh, food, uh, medical availability, uh, just the lowering of the lifestyle, yeah. the lifespan yeah. um, through through uh, first world lifestyle. And, and this is to say nothing of um, the sudden adult death syndrome uh, dies suddenly stuff. Yeah. So um, that's I guess that's where I, what I mean. And then mm -hmm. and then Dalio, again, I hate to just ride him so hard this episode just because I happen to be reading it. But, um, you know, his his position is that there there is only one way to reset a financial system. And it is uh, a hot war. I mean, that's it. It, it happens one way or the other. Um, and uh, uh, if that can be a, a short one, it can happen quickly. Um, but it generally is not going to be through nothing but peace because somewhere there's a whole lot of debt that somebody has to forfeit on. And whoever yeah. that yeah. is, is going to be angry and, and not just say, okay. Um, and so at one point it has to be enforced at the edge of the sword, if not um, in an actual you know, fisticuffs.
He's saying he's saying a reset through a hot domestic war. Um, you have, no, to, re- no, you have no, to reset no. that market, or um, it's, it's, he's working on two levels where he's talking about both internal order and external order. Internal being okay. like a national, external being yeah. a global, and he's saying that in um, uh, it's, it's, yeah. the the reserve currency is the worst case scenario because that ends up being the global conflict. But that you have this happens with um, uh, internal. Uh, or just, I say non-reserve currency countries, they end up doing this uh, kind of on a local level. Um, but that, yeah, when there needs to be a shift in the order that is based upon the financial system, it happens violently. It doesn't happen peaceably. Um, unless, I mean, someone outside can come in and impose peace on it, right? That's again, like, what did the U.S. government do in 2008? They, they imposed peace on the financial order by buying its own debt. Why could they do that? Because people believed they could do that. Um, what happens when they can no longer believe they can do that? What happens when your dollar doesn't get you what you need? What happens when that's the case for a large percentage of the people? Um, that That's more what he's he's pointing yeah. at. And yeah, 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 yeah. at yeah. some point, he, the way he reads history, his whole thing's based upon the, the history of markets. Um, there is no examples in history where the new regime just kind of walks in and says, hey, everybody follow me. And they're like, okay, sure, you can restructure right, us. Yeah. Right. Huh? Yeah, and uh, see, I think that could happen to the United States without a war because it happened to Great Britain. Without That is, without a war intentionally trying to destroy the United States. Inside of, inside of the order. Correct. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, because Britain was hollowed out what is now called the Rust Belt, which was once the equivalent of, you know, a hundred Silicon Valleys was hollowed out without a war, right. strictly speaking, destroying it internally. So those kinds of things, I mean, who knows, right? Because what you're looking at is if they're passing a 17,000 page bill, they already have all of their various demands and constituent parties ready to go. It's all stacked up there. Here we go. Let's get it through while we still have power in the house. Now that that's happened, you're in a stage that really is not even a Zelensky style stage. I mean, we're we're still back in like 1993 Russia. So you know your prediction about food and, and you know and the availability of medicine, and then a a raised mortality rate just apart from mass vaccination. All of that makes a ton of sense. Because I don't think that we're at the stage of being bid upon by other powers in a way that, you know, maybe an American businessman is bidding on certain things in Ukraine the way he did in Russia in the night. We're Russia in the 90s, if we're anything. We're not. Sure. We're we're not Ukraine in 2022. And so a rise in violence, gangsterism of all kinds. Yes. Because I think that, I mean, it's almost like we don't need a Berlin Wall to come down because we're bringing it down ourselves on a human level. You know, I mean, I think one of the things that we said about the potential for civil war earlier as an analogy to our our first civil war is that we're not biologically capable of such a civil war. Right. Yeah. On a level of just sheer, you know, can I pass my PFT biological fitness for war? We're not there. So... You know, I mean, our our collapse, like our regime's own decline, 
is ongoing without some kind of climactic moment occurring or, you know, Yeltsin calling for Pizza Hut to deliver to the Kremlin. None of that needs to happen because we're not we're not going out with a bang. We're going out with a whimper. I suspect that something a lot like that will eventually occur in Ukraine, Western backed as it is, because it's already occurred to Western approved governments in Iraq and Afghanistan. They did exist for a while, but they were openly, in a way that our regime is not, openly fragile and eventually will declined or funding declined or parties changed or whatever. Someone gets assassinated. Everything's different two weeks later, whatever. We're just not doing any of that openly. So whatever is going to happen to various client states of ours will happen as it has in the very recent past. I mean, we just got out of Afghanistan two seconds ago in the whole scheme of things compared to how long we were there. Same thing's probably going to happen to Ukraine and Zelensky, and he can go live in California or something. But it's happening to us. It just happens in a way that is, I mean, it's a difference between you take the container of yogurt and you just throw it all out at once versus we're gradually being scooped out. Yeah. So it's just taking longer. Yeah. Yeah. But I I, I, I guess I still, and maybe it's the, it's the issue of the, the phrase hot war. So like there's like two sides lining up and shooting at each other. Um, mm -hmm. No, no. I see like, like 50 billion sides gradually ascending into more barbaric settlements of whatever it is, whether that's, the IRS with guns at your door because of your PayPal account, uh, or whether that is uh, the immigrants in El Paso finally deciding, you know, I just want this house. Um, it, at what point are we unable to maintain the peace because yeah. there are too many have-nots and too few haves, and there are no uh, agreed-upon modes of righteousness for honoring each other. But instead, uh, the the hunger, um, what, what did you call it earlier? Um, the usury. Yeah, the unnatural greed, uh, the rapacious mind uh, is what has been fed. Um, and you're right. Like there's a, there, many, many, many uh, current American citizens won't be able to defend themselves. Yeah, that's, that's true. They're, they're, not, they're not equipped for it. This is where the feeling of powerlessness comes from too, though. So how would I even learn? Um, if I did learn, uh, isn't the law set against me to, to, uh, you know, to prevent me from protecting myself, whereas encouraging the, the individual who is not even here legally, um, to, to do whatever he needs to do. Right. And I just, uh, that, I guess that's what I'm, I'm referring to as a civil war. Uh, it's not fought with colors. Uh, it's, it's fought with tribes and, and, I, I think we're already in it in that regard. Um, yeah. You know, the, the city yeah, streets especially. That's right. Yeah. Certainly on the streets of Chicago, you are already engaged in tribal warfare. You have been for a long time. The gangs have always been arrayed similar to prison along racial lines, but then fight both across and inside of racial lines. And so your war is at this point probably largely between black gangs and mostly Mexican gangs, probably in Chicago, not Puerto Ricans so much. 
I mean, I think what what you're asking for basically is an examination of Illinois. I did Florida. Maybe that was a little too hopeful. <laughs> but I would be happy to talk about Illinois because I think that it is a it has so many things about it that chronicle American decline. I mean, it, uh-huh. if there is a place similar to Ukraine in the United States, it's Illinois or it's Ohio or it's Pennsylvania. It's not Texas or right. Florida or somewhere else with sunshine and defense contractors. So that hollowing out process probably is one that we need to talk more about. Because when I think about Ukraine, I don't I don't think that much about how many Americans are going to be engaged because I know what our acceptable casualty levels post-Vietnam are and how we hide where American troops are anyway, like in West Africa. You know, obviously we're going to pour a ton of money into it. Obviously, eventually it may, may, could win, but it probably won't because they're fighting a much larger country with a much greater capacity for attrition. What we're really interested in is how we basically are Ukraine just on some sort of time delay. Yeah. And so what happens to us if that's actually, if that contention is actually true? Well, and, and again, do we reach a point where there is a country that then is de facto bigger than us and, and calls our bluff? And, and what do we do then? Yeah, I I think we will. I think we will. Yeah, because I think the Russians will call our bluff. But who knows? Yeah, I was thinking China, Um, and and you know they're (laughs) they're talking together and they're they're making good with uh, Saudi Arabia too. Like they they don't need us. They you can see that they know they don't need us. That's right. And um, well, when you're the bully and everyone else realizes they don't need you, uh, it's kind of a rough spot to be in. Maybe we'll pick this up next time. You're listening to Brief History yes, Power. You know where to find us, sir. You wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, 
Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.